it and never see the seven wonders that'll be all right if i don't make it to the big leagues if i never win a grammy i'm gonna be just fine cause i know exactly who i am Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 124, when we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by vibrating at the same frequency of this very same podcast, but on Earth 2. Yes, you if got you, to. If you can do that, if you have the ability, I suggest that's what you do. We recommend. Yes. Uh, that's a good hint for what we're reading today. Um, a couple of comics, actually. Justice League of America, number numbers 219 and 220. The uh, cover dates are October and November 1983. Uh, this is the Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension. Writers mm-hmm. were Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway, with special thanks to Marv Wolfman. Uh, pencils by Chuck Patton, inks by Romeo Tangal and Tanghal and Pablo Marcos, colors by Gene D'Angelo, letters by John Costanza and Davey, David Cody Weiss, editor was Len Wein, cover price was 60 centavos per issue. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, this is one uh, I, I we're going to kind of talk about a little bit, but if you don't understand the DC Comics multiverse, um, <laughs> we we have talked about it before, but it's a it's a concept that uh, you, you should get familiar with uh, before sure. before diving in too deeply here. But if you are, then we'll head right to the creator bios, and we'll start off with Rascally Roy Thomas, born November twenty second, nineteen forty, in Jackson, Missouri. Roy was a fan of comics from a very early age and drew his own in grade school for friends and family. The first of these was titled All Giant Comics, which he recalls as having featured such characters as Elephant Giant. Bit of a redundant name there. Uh, He graduated from Southeast Missouri State University in 1961 with a Bachelor's of Science degree in education, and he majored in history and social science. Thomas became an early and active member of Silver Age comic book fandom when it organized in the early 1960s. Then a high school English teacher, Roy took over Jerry Bales uh, as editor of the fanzine Alter Ego in 1964, which is produced as a deluxe glossy magazine today, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Sure, and uh, we've told this story before, but in 1953, Jerry Bales wrote to DC, care of editor Julius Schwartz, to inquire about the issues of All-Star Comics. His letter would be forwarded to former Justice Society writer Gardner Fox, and Bales was actually eventually able to convince Fox, this is in early 1959, to sell him his own personal bound copies of All-Star Comics issues 1 through 24. Which is uh, pretty insane. Wow, I'd love to see uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, could you imagine? Oh, gosh. 
Now, in November 1960, a letter from Roy Thomas to Julius Schwartz inquired about those same issues. So Schwartz put Thomas in contact with Gardner Fox. Yeah, just shut them right off, folks. Yes. Like... <laughs> and Fox told Roy that he had just sold his bound copies to Jerry Bales, and then so he put Thomas in touch with Bales, uh, who was living in Detroit at the time. Uh, Bales and Thomas would go on to exchange 100 pages worth of letters in less than five months. This started at the end of uh, November 1960, and they uh, forged a friendship with which, uh, in Roy Thomas's words, set in motion a chain of events which led to alter ego, organized comic fandom, the Alley Awards, and maybe a bit more. Now you can learn more about uh, a lot more about this early comic book fandom in the first episode of our series on the underground comics and the first part of our series on the direct market. Those are both weird comics history episodes, and they are both waiting for you in our archives. Ooh. Now, letters from him uh, appeared regularly in the pages of both DC and Marvel Comics, including Flash number 116, November 1960, cover date, Fantastic Four number 5, July 1962, cover date, Fantastic Four 15, June 1963, cover date, and Fantastic Four 22, January 1964, cover date. And I have a feeling there are many more, but... I'm sure. Find, find those, folks, and, and let us know. <laughs> uh, in 1965, Roy moved to New York City to take a job at DC Comics as assistant to Mort Weisinger, who was the editor of the Superman family of titles. In a 2005 interview with Alter Ego, Roy elaborated, I had already written a Jimmy Olsen script a few months before while still living and teaching in the St. Louis area. I worked at DC for eight days in late June and very early July of 1965. Uh, he was miserable there because Mort Weisinger is a famous uh, chops sure. breaker. So yeah. uh, Stan had offered Roy a uh, Stan Lee uh, had offered Roy a Marvel writing test, which he told the Jack Kirby Collector magazine in 1998 was four Jack Kirby pages from Fantastic Four Annual Number Two. Stan Lee had Saul Brodsky, Brodsky or someone take out the dialogue. It was just black and white. Other people like Denny O'Neill and Gary Friedrich took took it, but soon afterwards we stopped using it. The next day, Thomas was at DC proofreading a Supergirl story when Marvel secretary Flo Steinberg called asking Thomas to meet with Stan Lee during lunch, where Thomas agreed to work for Marvel. He returned to DC to give indefinite notice to Weisinger, but Weisinger ordered him to leave immediately, and he was back at Marvel less than an hour after he first <laughs> left, and he had a modeling with Millie assignment to do over the weekend. It was Friday. Uh, up to this point, Stan Lee was the sole writer for all Marvel comics, uh, with his brother Larry Lieber pitching in here and there where needed. Roy Thomas was the first writer hired by Stan to have staying power, even against veterans like Robert Bernstein, Ernie Hart, Leon Lazarus, and Don Rico, and talented newcomers Steve Skeets and Denny O'Neill, who, by the way, is a fellow Missourian who was recommended to Marvel by Roy himself. I've told that story, too. Uh, we think it's possible this is just a cosmic treadmill conjecture, uh, but we think we think the reason Roy stayed around and gained a lot of favor with Stanley is because he his writing was the most similar to Stanley's. You know, he really could yeah. evoke that style uh, the closest. So that that's a belief. That's all that is. So that, certainly, yeah. <laughs> now Roy's Marvel debut was the story "Whom Can I Turn To?" that appeared in Modeling with Millie number forty-four, December nineteen sixty-five, cover date. A production glitch in the, left the logo and credits off the story, which resulted in it being left off of many of his bibliographies. So you're not always going to see this as his first uh, yeah. his debut in Marvel. Yeah. And now Thomas's first Marvel superhero scripting was "My Life for Yours." That was the Iron Man feature in Tales of Suspense number seventy-three. 
Story, January 1966 cover date from Plots by Lee and Flo Steinberg. Uh, Roy suggests that Stan rewrote at least half of this first attempt. <laughs> Uh, two previously written freelance stories for Charlton Comics would also see print around this time. That was The Second Trojan War. It appeared in Son of Vulcan, number 50, January 1966 cover. And The Eye of Horus, that appeared in Blue Beetle, number 54, March 1966 cover date. Thomas would take his uh, first long-term Marvel title, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, uh, starting with issue number 29, April 1966 cover date, and continuing through issue number 41, April 1967 cover date, as well as the series 1966 annual, the uh, Sergeant Fury special number two. He also began writing the title Uncanny X-Men from issues 20 through through 43. That was May 1966 through April 1968. And he would finally take over the Avengers, starting with issue number 35, December 1966 cover date. And he stayed on that one until 1972. Now, this this last run is especially revered for its strong continuity and characterization. Yeah, he really he really jumped into the uh, continuity of it all with that one. The deep end, yes. Uh, but you know, Chris, I, I want to say that his uh, his uh, twenty three issue run on X Men, uh, that's also that's where a lot of people consider he's his start at Marvel. Even though yeah. he actually started years before, this is what a lot of people consider his, his highest first, profile, his first big, exactly, yeah. yeah, his first uh, big assignment. Which is ironic because it wasn't really that big of a book at the time, but uh, it wasn't now. Yeah, <laughs> both both of these runs are well revered. He's, he's a he's a well respected fella, is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Uh, now, Roy would write several Doctor Strange stories that appeared in Strange Tales, and when that title became Doctor Strange, he wrote the entire run. That's issues 169 through 183, June 1968 through November 1969, with Gene Colan and Tom Palmer handling most of the art duties. Roy Thomas eloped in 1968, and when he returned to Marvel a day later, coming back from a comic convention in St. Louis, production manager Saul Brodsky had reassigned Doctor Strange to newcomer Archie Goodwin. Roy convinced Brodsky to return it to him. He said, I got very possessive about Doctor Strange. It wasn't a huge seller, but by the time it was canceled, we were selling in the low 40% range of more than a 400,000 print run. So it was actually selling a couple of hundred thousand copies, but at that time you needed to sell even more. Roy eventually did have a honeymoon in the Caribbean where he scripted the wedding of Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne. Mm. He'd feel it romantic, and uh, in the Avengers number 60, that had a January 1969 cover date. Roy had left the Uncanny X-Men after issue number 43, but returned with issue number 55, April 1969 cover date, when the series was on the verge of cancellation. His collaboration with artist Neil Adams through number 63, that's December 1969 cover date, is considered a creative highlight, though the title was canceled with issue number 66. Thomas won the 1969 Alley Award that year for Best Writer, while Neil Adams and Tom Palmer netted 1969 Alley Awards for Best Pencil Artist and Best Inking Artist, respectively. Thomas and artist Barry Windsor Smith launched Conan the Barbarian in October 1970, and Roy would go on to script hundreds of Conan titles in Marvel Comics and in the black and white magazine Savage Tales and The Savage Sword of Conan the Barbarian. Thomas was the first person other than Stan Lee to receive a writer's credit for The Amazing Spider-Man, and he and Ross Andrew launched the Spider-Man spin-off title Marvel Team-Up in March 1972. In 1972, when Lee became Marvel's publisher, 
Roy Thomas succeeded him as editor-in-chief while continuing to script the flagship titles like Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man. He had launched new, uh, such new titles as The Defenders and What If, a title that explored alternate possibilities, and uh, we discussed the origins of the, of the Defenders in episode number 32 of The Cosmic Treadmill. That's in the archives. Roy also indulged his love for the Golden Age comics when he gave the World War II era team The Invaders their own series, and that and Giant Size Invaders number 1 in 1975. That same year, Thomas wrote the first joint publishing venture between Marvel and DC Comics. That was a 72-page Wizard of Oz movie adaptation in an oversized Treasury Edition format, and that had art by John Buscema. Roy and Buscema crafted a comics adaptation of Tarzan for Marvel in June 1977, and Roy was also instrumental in licensing the Star Wars adaptation for Marvel, which you can hear us talk a whole lot about in the very recent 119th episode of The Cosmic Treadmill, available in the archives. Recent? It feels like it was a whole year ago. It was 2018, yes. Thanks, Dad. Anyway, uh, in 1981, (laughs) after a dispute with then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, Thomas signed a three-year exclusive writing-editing contract with DC. Roy, who had moved to the West Coast, bristled at his work being handled by an in-house editor. That was the problem. He marked his return to DC with a two-part Green Lantern story in Green Lantern number 138 and 139, that was March-April 1981 cover dates, and briefly wrote Batman, DC Comics Presents, and the Legion of Superheroes. Roy dipped back into the Golden Age well and realized another childhood dream when he was able to write for the Justice Society of America, reintroducing them in an insert in Justice League of America number 193 that had a cover date of August 1981 and continuing on in All-Star Squadron number 1 September 1981 cover date. DC gave Thomas's work a promotional push by featuring several of his series in free 16-page insert previews, which was sort of a... Promo thing they had going on for a few comics at that yeah. moment. A bonus book. Teen yes. Titans debuted that way too. I know, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas married his second wife, Danette, Danette Couto, in uh, May 1981, and she legally changed her name to Dan. The two of them became and have been frequent writing partners. For example, Thomas credits Dan with the original idea for Arek, Son of Thunder series, drawn by Ernie Cologne and first appearing as an insert in the Warlord number 48, August 1981 cover date, and then it had its own series that ran for 50 issues from September 1981 to November 1985 cover dates. Writer Jerry Conway would also be a frequent collaborator with Thomas. Together they wrote a two-part Superman-Captain Marvel team-up in DC Comics Presents number 33, that had a May 1981 cover date, a series of Atari Force and Sword Quest mini-comics packaged with Atari 2600 video games, and three Justice League Justice Society crossovers, including the one we're about to talk about in a little while. Yes, uh, but before we hop across the table, let's go to the side of the table here, and we meet Jerry Conway. (laughs) Gerald Francis Conway was born September 10th, 1952 in Brooklyn, New York. Jerry was a comics fan very early on. Uh, A letter from him would appear in Fantastic Four number 50, that's May 1966 cover date, when he was only 13 years old. Three years later, Jerry published his first professional work. It was a a six-and-a-half-page story called Aaron Phillips' Photo Finish. That appeared in DC Comics' House of Secrets number 81, September 1969 cover date, with art by Jack Spaulding. He continued selling anthological stories for that series and for Marvel's Chamber of Darkness and Tower of Shadows through the end of 1970. 
By this time, he had also published one-page text short stories in DC's All-Star Western No. 1, that's September 1970 cover date, and Super DC Giant S14, October 1970, that no one on Earth has read even to this day. Nobody reads those text pages. Ever. No one ever ever read them. (laughs) I've taken pictures of them and posted them online. I've seen that, and I've looked at them, them and I've never read one word of them. (laughs) Nope, me either. Now, uh, Jerry wrote his first continuing character story in... The Phantom Stranger, number 10, uh, December 1970, with art by Jim Aparo, so at least it looked good. Oh, yeah. Uh, In 2008, Jerry would tell Back Issue magazine how he broke into Marvel. He says, I'd been writing for DC Comics for two or three years, but to paraphrase the joke about the actor's ambition to be a director, what I really wanted to do was write superheroes, specifically Marvel heroes. Through friends, I'd become acquainted with Roy Thomas, who was Stan Lee's right-hand man at the time, and Roy offered me a shot at the Marvel writing test. Stan wasn't impressed, but Roy liked what I did and began throwing some short assignments my way, including scripting over his plot on an early Kazar story. Now, that would be Astonishing Tales number three. That was December 1970 cover date. Story was called Back to the Savage Land, and it was penciled by Barry Windsor Smith. So, a uh, pretty neat artist to have on your first story. Really? I know. Wow. It's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> now, he scripted the first Man-Thing story in 1971. That was for Savage Tales number 1, uh, May of that year. He shared the co-creation credit with Stan Lee and Roy Thomas. Uh, the issue was penciled by Gray Morrow. Uh, Jerry co-created with writers Roy and Gene Thomas and artist uh, Mike Plug, uh, the lead character on the feature Werewolf by Night, that's Jack Russell, in Marvel Spotlight number 2, February 1972, cover date. And he also wrote the inaugural issue of Tomb of Dracula, though uh, we usually think of Marv Wolfman with that. Uh, we do, yeah. <laughs> Jerry Conway did uh, write the first issue. First one. April 1972, yes, April 1972 cover date. And he did so over plots by Roy Thomas. Uh, that issue was penciled by Gene Colan. Uh, Conway began writing superhero stories with Daredevil number 72, January 1971 cover date, also penciled by Gene Colan. He quickly went on to assignments on Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, and both the Inhumans and the Black Widow features in the split book Amazing Adventures. You know, he wanted to do superhero work, but he was writing for Phantom Stranger, Chris. Isn't that technically a superhero? Didn't that... That doesn't count? (laughs) No? Okay. (laughs) Uh, Also, I think it's interesting, you know, reading this the way we're reading it, you get the impression that Gene... uh, that uh, Jerry Codway is a big horror f- fanatic, which yeah, I, don't, right. I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's really because the code we know relaxed right here in 1971, and suddenly yep. Marvel was like, yeah, yeah, werewolves, Draculas, mummies, please, <laughs> everything. So that's see, he kind of got those titles at the time. Uh, eventually, Conway would script virtually every other major Marvel title. In the early 1970s, Jerry Conway produced two science fiction novels. They were The Midnight Dancers in 1971 and Mindship in 1974. At 19, Conway began scripting The Amazing Spider-Man, succeeding Stan Lee as writer of one of Marvel's flagship titles. Issues number 111 to 149, that had August 1972 to October 1975 cover dates, including the landmark death of Gwen Stacy uh, in number 121, June 1973 cover date. Uh, That one was penciled by Gil Kane. Conway and Ross Andrew introduced The Punisher in The Amazing Spider-Man number 129 that had a February 1974 cover date. Conway wrote Fantastic Four, number 133 to 152. Those cover dates are April 1973 to November 1974. In a 2009 interview with the Fantastic Four fan site, Jerry reflected, 
Precocity is a well-known curse. Most of the pressure I felt as a younger writer was self-imposed. I wanted to be accepted by other writers and artists as an equal, which put me in some awkward situations, pretending to be more mature than I was, emotionally and professionally. As it happened, I was pretty good at faking a maturity I didn't have, which had advantages and, obviously, some disadvantages. I think people often forgot how young I was and expected me to perform at a level that was actually beyond me. The result was I was pretty stressed for most of my early career as a writer, and I often felt like I had no idea of what I was doing, which was true. I wrote instinctively and from the gut. When those instincts were appropriate to the material I was writing, for example, when I was writing The Amazing Spider-Man, the results were something I was quite proud of then and now. When my instincts were off, I didn't have the experience to either recognize it or to compensate for it, and with results that were more uneven. Now, we've mentioned this before during uh, Len Wein's bio in episode 31. That's when we discussed The Incredible Hulk number 181. Uh, Conway, along with Englehart and Len Wein, crafted an unofficial fourth-wall-breaking crossover which spanned titles from both major comic companies. This was in 1972. Each comic featured Englehart, Conway, and Wein, as well as Wein's first wife, Glynis, interacting with Marvel or DC characters at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont. Beginning in Amazing Beginning in Amazing Adventures number 16 by Englehart with art by Bob Brown and Frank McLaughlin. The, the story would continue in Justice League of America number 103 by Ween, Dick Dillon, and Dick Giordano and conclude in Thor number 207 by Conway and uh, John Buscema. Uh, Conway returned to DC Comics in mid-1975, beginning with Hercules Unbound, number one, and Kong the Untamed, number three, and Swamp Thing, number 19. Those were all cover dated November of that year. He wrote a revival of the Golden Age comic book series All-Star Comics, which introduced the character Power Girl in issue number 58. That's February 1976, cover date. Had art by Rick Estrada and Wally Wood. Shortly afterward, Conway was chosen by Marvel and DC editors to script the intercompany crossover Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man No. 1. This was a 96-page, tabloid-sized, $2 one-shot. This was the first collaborative superhero work between the two companies. Uh, Conway wrote two additional Superman projects in the oversized tabloid format, and those were... Those were Superman vs. Wonder Woman, which was drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, and Superman vs. Shazam, which was drawn by Rick by Rich Buckler. Those were both in 1978. Jerry continued writing for DC on titles including Superman, Detective Comics, Metal Men, Justice League of America, First Issue Special Number 11, that was starring Codename Assassin, and the licensed Tarzan books. Sort of like whatever Roy was doing, Conway was there too, or vice yep. versa. <laughs> Uh, Conway briefly uh, returned to Marvel and succeeded Marv Wolfman as editor-in-chief in in March 1976, but he held the job for, quote, about a month and a half, end quote, according to Jerry, and then abdicated the role to Archie Goodwin. Jerry wrote the February 14th to December 3rd, 1983 daily comic strips for Star Trek, based on the original series from the 1960s. Conway again wrote exclusively for DC for the next decade, writing both major and lesser titles, from those featuring Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Legion of Superheroes to such books as Weird Western Tales, Atari Force, and Sun Devils. 
With artist Al Milgram, Jerry co-created Firestorm, who debuted in Firestorm the Nuclear Man No. 1 in March 1978. And with Don Heck, he co-created the character that would come to be known as Commander Steel, who debuted as Hank Haywood in Steel the Indestructible Man No. 1, also March 1978 cover dates. Conway co-wrote with Roy Thomas the screenplay for animated feature Fire and Ice in 1983, animated by Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta. The two also wrote the basis for the screenplay for Conan the Destroyer, 1984. He had an eight-year run on the Justice League of America, writing most issues from issue 151 through 255, February 1978 through October 1986, including the double-sized anniversary issue number 200, March 1982, which a lot of people say is like the greatest Justice League story ever written. Yeah, people really dig that one. Now, Conway co-created with Chuck Patton the characters Vibe and Gypsy. They both debuted in Justice League of America Annual Number 2, October 1984 cover. Two other Conway co-creations, The Deserter with uh, Dick Ayers, only ever appeared in the first issue of Cancelled Comics Cavalcade from 1978. Also, Vixen, along with Bob Oxner, uh, which debuted in Action Comics Number 521, July 1981 cover date. They were slated to get their own miniseries, but they never materialized. While writer on Batman, his run spanned uh, issues 337 through 359, July 1981 through May 1983, and also the feature uh, Batman and Detective Comics, issues 497 through 526, December 1980 through May 1983, Conway introduced the characters Killer Croc and also Jason Todd. The latter character debuting in Batman number 357, March 1983, cover date, with art by Don Newton, would become Batman's second Robin. And you can find out about his fate way, way back in Weird Comics history, the fourth one. (laughs) That's in the archives. That's all. Scroll way down to the bottom, folks. It's It's down there. Uh, with artist Gene Colan, Conway revived the Golden Age supervillain Dr. Death in Batman number 345, March 1982, and The Monk in Batman 350, August 1982, and uh, that puts him smack dab in place to co-write the comics we're about to read today. But first, we still got to talk about other, <laughs> the, the uh, more to the side, right? We went to the side, now further yes. down the table, we have Marv Wolfman, but you know what? We've definitely done him enough. In fact, at one so. time, I think we did his bio five episodes in a row. Uh, so <laughs> you can check out. There's a lot of episodes, a lot of Teen Titans episodes. But uh, if, you wanna, if episodes, you wanna get, yeah, yeah uh, if you want to get a long bio, but the best bet is probably episode fifty, which is Christ and the Infinite Earths Part One. Has a nice long Marv Wolfman bio there. So we're gonna go now across the table to uh, the art side of things. Chuck Patton was born Francis Chuck Patton in 1960 in California. According to a 2000 interview with Spawn.com, Chuck is a self-taught artist, but he did to get a degree in art. Just don't know from where. Uh, He passed on a degree in journalism, though, and headed to New York to break into comics after DC Comics executive Dick Giordano enticed him with drawing Justice League of America. Patton entered the comics industry in 1983 by penciling a brief run of creeper backup stories in The Flash number numbers 318 to 323. Those had uh, February through July uh, cover dates, 1983, written by Nick Cuddy. After drawing various titles, including Green Lantern, The Brave and the Bold, and the Green Arrow backup feature in Detective Comics, Patton became the artist of Justice League of America, beginning with number 217, August 1983 cover date, and he drew issues 217 to 239 of JLA, which will include the books that we're going to discuss today. 
but not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> now, these this story is a very uh, status quo changing for a certain character. It's uh, Black Canary. So we're going to get you up to speed on Black Canary up to this point. Yeah. Real name, Diana Drake. First appearance, Flash Comics number 86, August 1947, cover date. She was created by Robert Kaniger and Carmine Infantino. Now, she would become the Black Canary. This is a vigilante without any superheroes uh, by posing as a criminal in order to infiltrate and take down gangs. Her first appearance was in a Johnny Thunder story titled, get this, The Black Canary. Hey, very appropriate, yeah. <laughs> now, what, what's a Johnny Thunder story doing in a Flash book? Well, <laughs> Flash comics had several features back during the Golden Age. Uh, this issue alone has stories starring The Flash, Jay Garrick, uh, Johnny Thunder, Hawkman, and everybody's favorite, Ghost Patrol. Ooh, I never forgot Ghost Love Patrol. Them. Yeah. Now, Johnny Thunder almost immediately fell head over heels in love with Dinah, uh, though she meets a man named Larry Lance in Flash Comics number 92, February 1948, who she falls in love with and eventually marries. So Dinah drops the pretense of being a criminal and becomes a full-fledged hero, even taking a retiring Johnny Thunder's place as a member of the Justice Society of America. This occurred at the end of uh, All-Star Comics number 41, July 1948, cover date in the story, The Case of the Patriotic Crimes. She would appear in All-Star Comics till the title went on extended hiatus with issue number 57, February through March 1951, cover dates. Her next appearance would be in Flash number 129, June 1962, cover date, following that whole Flash of Two Worlds thing that didn't really go anywhere, you know what I mean? No, Whatever that never was. followed up on no, that. No, never did anything with it. Uh, from here, she would take part in the many Justice League Justice Society annual meetups, including the one which ran from Justice League of America number 73 to 74. That was August, September 1969, written by Denny O'Neill and with art by Dick Dillon. Yeah, during that story, a living star known as Aquarius attacks Earth-2. Seeing as this is a threat they can't handle alone, the Justice Society sends Red Tornado over to Earth-1 to fetch the Justice League in order to give him a much-needed hand. During the battle, the heroes of Earth-1 are forced to face off with their Earth-2 counterparts, or best approximation thereof. Uh, during a fight between Black Canary and Green Arrow, Ollie manages to take Dinah down with a gimmicked glue arrow. Uh, this leaves her easy pickings for Aquarius, who takes aim with a great big ball of energy. Dinah's husband, Larry Lance, throws himself into the path of said energy ball and winds up taking a fatal blow, though saving Dinah's life in the process. Of course, that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. uh, not wanting to remain on Earth 2 following the death of her husband, Dinah decides to follow the Justice League back to Earth 1, where she can begin life anew. Upon arrival, she discovers her ability to produce a senses-shattering canary cry. This is written off as being a byproduct of Aquarius's cosmic magics. Uh, the, the convenience uh, school yes. of magics, we call that. <laughs> Just like with the JSA, she joins the Justice League as a replacement, this time replacing Wonder Woman. So uh, it's not the only time she'll do that either. Yep. Uh, she also she almost immediately begins a romance with Green Arrow, and she's drawn to him by his laugh, which is something that reminds her of her late husband. Yeah, you know, it's pretty cut and dry, right? I mean, at least for comics, For comics, anyway. sure, yeah. <laughs> well, that's all about to change, because who's ready to have their minds blown, or at least boggled? Well, I am, I am. But first, why are the Justice League and Justice Society having these annual get-togethers anyway? 
Well, we could go into deep detail about the hows and whys going all the way back to that Flash 2 world story in Flash number 123, but we've already done that. Uh, if you mm-hmm. check out episodes 50 to 51 of the Cosmic Treadmill, we go through every JLA, JSA annual crisis, so you can uh, listen to that in brief, but uh, you can listen to that to uh, get up to speed on, on the what's and where's and all that good stuff. So finally... Let's get into Justice League of America, number 219, October 1983, cover date. Story is called Crisis in the Thunderbolt Dimension, Part 1. It opens uh, with a group of gaudily dressed terrorists terrorizing Central City. They're demanding 10 million bucks, otherwise they're going to vaporize the five-block radius. Unfortunately for these geeks, they pick the one week a year where the Justice League and Justice Society have their annual team-up. Enter Two Flashes. Yeah, one of the geeks goes, Two Flashes? I'll kill you both! And the Golden Age Flash says, This guy scares me to death. To which Barry says, I'm just shaking in my boots. Barry and Jay make short work of these terrorists and even have some fun with the ricocheted bullets, because they can. Uh, Jay spells out JSA on a nearby wall. Which uh, Barry uh, playfully edits. He crosses out the S and adds an L. Oh, that's something. A nearby officer recognizes Jay Garrick from comic books. He says, The Flash called the other guy. The Flash? Oh, yeah, now I remember from the old comic books. Yeah, nothing to see here, folks. Just some guy from the comics giving flesh, you know. Move no along, big deal. My sugar and spike are coming down the block. <laughs> now, of course, this officer is referring to the fact that the Earth 2 heroes were all comic book characters on Earth 1. Uh, Barry actually took his name from being a fan of the Golden Age Flash comics. Now, as the speedsters rush off to a nearby transporter tube to return to the Justice League satellite, we get a bit of an exposition dump to fill us in on the multiple Earths. Yeah, Jay Garrick says... I think it's chauvinistic of you to call this world Earth-1 and my world Earth-2. Parallel Earths they may be, with similar histories, but superheroes sprang up on my Earth first, back before World War II. And by my way of thinking, that makes our world Earth-1 and your world Earth-2. You know, I never really thought about this before, but do the people who live on Earth 2 realize that they're living on Earth 2? Do they, do they call Earth like, 2? I mean, I don't <laughs> think so. Is, is this just like a, like a hushed secret in the superhero community? Or I mean, like... I, yeah, I really would like to know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we need, I think we need Congress to weigh in on this because I know. <laughs> if the people don't know, they should know, I they think. They should. You know. I'd want to know. Uh, now, uh, Jay and Barry run up the side of a skyscraper to reach that JLA transport tube. Before they can enter, however, a lightning storm begins to rage. I enjoy our annual get-togethers, and how we get together doesn't matter much to me. Same here. And then Barry notices the lightning. Looks like we're leaving Central City just in time. Well, uh, no, you're just a moment too late, Flash, because a pink bolt of lightning is headed right your way. Yes, the pink lightning bolt is revealed to be Johnny Thunder's genie, Thunderbolt. Oh, my lord. I don't want to believe it. Johnny Thunder's Thunderbolt? What? Why did you attack us? The genie remains silent as it wraps itself around Barry's torso. You must be out of your mind. And what about Johnny? What has he to do with this? Answer me, blast you, or I'll... Jay is struck down by the crack of thunder. Bolt. Bolt. Uh, Jay recovers just in time to see T-Bolt vanish. He trudges over to Barry, who has been KO'd. Dear heaven, he's dying. I don't know why the T-Bolt attacked us. 
And right now, it doesn't matter. I just have to get Barry to the Justice League. Now, speaking of the Justice League, we head up to the satellite where a party is a-hopping. Yeah, with Dinah, it's a huntress and power girl, while holding her hands about a foot apart, says, Oh, it's about this long and as wide around as a marking pen. Mm. Power girl responds with, Tell Oliver I'm impressed, Dinah. Wait, wait, what, 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 are, what are you talking about? I didn't think he could make an arrow that size. Never mind that it would fly. Oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, so talking. close. Whoa, yeesh. Uh, <laughs> off to the side, Firestorm creepily gazes as Power, at Power Girl, wondering if he's got a shot with her. An elongated man grabs him for, for a pep talk. And he goes, line up, Firestorm. You look about as cheerful as a Bronco rider with terminal saddle sores. It's Power Girl, Ralph. After what happened last year, I thought she and I were a number. Now, for for those who don't know, what happened last year was that they had a pretty vapid and shallow chat following a Crisis on Earth Prime. That was it. That was it. Once a year meeting was they they, they talked. (laughs) It's about right. Uh, We'll eventually be covering that JLA, JSA crossover too, but that one is a biggie that we might need a running start to, uh, to do right. Yeah, that, then we'll obviously take a break between crises, I think. Oh, for sure. Good, for good sure. way to be. Uh, <laughs> so this chat is overheard by Our Man and Satara, and they both agree that Ronnie just isn't pursuing PG hard enough. And, uh, Whoa now, guys. Hey now. You know. <laughs> the frivolity is then interrupted by the arrival of T-Bolt. <laughs> And uh, the world falls down around us. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Within a handful of pages, the Earth One heroes have been rendered comatose. Now, nothing the heroes throw at T-Bolt proves to be very effective until Black Canary lets fly with her canary fly, canary cry. With a faint hope, it's a faint hope, but I've got to try my canary cry. Eee! T-Bolt vanishes. Hunter says, he's fading away. Canary, I don't know how you did it when the others failed. That's what we in the biz call a vote of confidence, right? <laughs> but you got rid of him, and this is one woman who isn't sorry he's gone. Yeah, Power Girl pipes up and goes, But what about Firestorm and the other Justice Leaguers? I think we just found that bit that Jerry Conway wrote right there, right? It's gotta yeah, he, be. He, he really pushed Firestorm <laughs> What about hard. Nixon? And what about, what about Deserter? <laughs> Gypsy, <laughs> the Deserter. <laughs> <laughs> Our man goes, Zatanna, elongated man, Firestorm and Green Lantern. How could the Thunderbolt have done such harm to them while leaving the rest of us relatively untouched? Just then, Jay arrives, holding Barry's also comatose body. The Earth 2 natives bring their fallen to the Meta Lab in Sea Deck. Jay says, Five of our friends struck down by a being we've always counted as an ally. Why? And Red Tornado says, a more pertinent question, perhaps, is this. Why were we spared? Now, while Dinah and Reddy bicker back and forth about how to approach this, Huntress breaks in over the video PA system to inform the team that the transmatter machine, which is how the heroes travel between Earths, has been destroyed. Though, in fairness, it gets destroyed or damaged just about every time Pretty they much, use it. Yeah, so what are you going to do? Yeah, it's really a one-time <laughs> use thing, if it you is. think about it. <laughs> it's it's one-time use and then 11 months of repair. Just got to repair it uh, the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Now, while checking out the damage, Jay posits a theory. Add it up, folks. The T-Bolt attacks us all, but only injures those of us who weren't born, or like Reddy, built on Earth 2. And in the course of the battle, he destroys our main source of transportation between worlds. Dinah says, Why single us out, Flash? For that matter, what difference does it make which Earth we were born on? 
This leads to a bit of an expositional dump where uh, we learn about how Dinah came to live on Earth-1. We covered it earlier, but for those of you just joining us... Are we doing this live now, Chris? I don't know. We'll just, we'll just play along. Just oh. play along. Yeah. Well, uh, back on Earth-2, Dinah and her husband, Larry Lance, owned a flower shop. One day, Starman came crashing through her skylight. Yes, this was during that aforementioned JLA-JSA battle against Aquarius that took place in Justice League of America issues 73 and 74, during which Dinah's husband Larry Lance sacrificed himself to save her. Larry! Darling Larry! Sacrificed his life for mine! After that, I couldn't stay on Earth 2. There were too many painful memories. I came here to Earth 1 and joined the League. This is my home now. This is where I belong. And she also reflects on how she came to discover her canary cry. I remember the moment I discovered my canary cry. I never had any powers on Earth, too, but somehow my exposure to Aquarius's astral emanations turned me into an instant mutant. Astral emanation sounds kind of foul, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds kind of sticky. Yes, me. Yeah. Uh, and the Starman is uh, now tired of Dinah's trip down memory, memory lane. Yeah, as I said, Dinah, uh, better not to dwell on the past. Besides, this has nothing to do with our current crisis. Yeah, calm down, Ted. I mean, <laughs> why are you being such a jerk? Quiet, lady. You know, men are talking, you know. Quiet in the back. <laughs> uh, now, Red Tornado directs the Earth Tours' attention to the monitors, and we learn that both Superman and Wonder Woman have also been taken out uh, in their civilian duds by T-Bolt. Huntress reveals that they were unable to get in contact with Green Arrow, Aquaman, or Hawksman and Girl, so it's safe to assume they were taken out, too. And probably that Chuck Patton didn't feel much like drawing them for whatever reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so if that's not bad enough, Power Girl pops her head into the monitor room to let the group know about a whole bunch of other nonsense going on in the world, which she could see on a whole other wall of monitors. So it's a <laughs> lot of monitors on this satellite, you notice Hold that? It. Yes, she's uh, she's pretty much reporting the news here. She says, In Mexico, two superpowered characters have seized the Pyramid of the Sun, sealing it in some sort of force field and driving away tourists and archaeologists alike. And uh, we see on the screen Kronos and the Fiddler acting all goofy on a hovering craft above the pyramid. I recognize one of them from an old Justice Society battle. That's the Fiddler. And your JLA computer identifies the other as Kronos, the Clock King. And then we uh, the scene shifts over to Egypt and some uh, more pyramids. Like, did, did this villains get this idea from Cobra Commander or something? Or, like, right. uh, did they watch Indiana Jones, the uh, first one or something like that? <laughs> In Egypt, someone named Dr. Alchemy has teamed up with Earth 2's Icicle to take over the Great Pyramid. Apparently, the Egyptian army is helpless against them. And finally, over at Stonehenge... And on the Salisbury Plain in England, the wizard from my world and Felix Faust from your Earth have claimed the ancient runes of Stonehenge. So Flash decides it's time to hop to and uh, begins to direct traffic. He and our man, who has 35 minutes lift on his latest binge before he goes back to Scrawny, will uh, head off to Mexico. Power Girl, Huntress, and Red Tornado will head to Egypt. And uh, Black Canary and Starman will uh, stay behind? Yeah, yeah I, I, what about Stonehenge? Apparently it's uh, more important for them to stay behind and coordinate the efforts with others of the others. Mm. We call that Martian Manhunter duty. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> here, but... So uh, once the heroes have split, Starman has a proposition for Dinah. Hey, now. It's foolish, but I feel so useless here. Then let's do something about it, Dinah. Starman, I thought you'd left with the others. 
Come on, Dinah. This mission was invitation only. Nobody wants really? either of you around. Finding only the two losers are here. But uh, <laughs> I had a notion we could do more good working together without the rest. Hey, now. <laughs> There's an obvious trail we haven't followed. The trail of Johnny Thunder's T-Bolt. Wait, what are you talking? Wait a moment. You mean follow like Thunderbolts? That's uh, that's like drug slang, right? I feel like it is. I feel like it must be. Follow the Thunderbolt? Yeah. <laughs> right. Track him into the Thunderbolt dimension. Game? Well, of course she's game. And uh, it takes all of like a handful of seconds for them to transport into the Thunderbolt dimension, which, you know, begs the question, why didn't they do this 15 pages ago? Why wasn't that the first thing you did? I don't right? understand. Like, you know, go, go where the Thunderbolts go. <laughs> uh, so after a few moments of getting her bearings, Starman and Dinah find themselves shocked and snared by the T-Bolt working at the behest of Johnny Thunder of Earth-1. Yes, Johnny goes, It gets kind of lonely around here, even with my guest. And the T-Bolt's just no fun at all. Truth is, I think he hates my guts. Johnny Thunder. But you're not the Johnny Thunder we know. You're the other one. The Earth-1 Johnny Thunder. And somehow you've taken control of the T-Bolt. Now, Dinah's more concerned with Johnny's mention of guests. Mm -hmm. And so he introduced them. And they arrive in a glass casket. And they are... Black Canary and Larry Lance? What? Dun, dun. <laughs> so we head right into the uh, second part and the conclusion in Justice League of America number 220, November 1983, cover date. This one's titled The Doppelganger Gambit. And we open here with the Earth 2 heroes. That's Flash, Hour Man, Huntress, Power Girl, and Red Tornado touching down on Earth 1 via a JLA transport tube. Uh, apparently, PG is headed to Stonehenge, Chris, so that's covered now. Not that she mentioned it last issue. Well, you know, she she didn't she didn't necessarily say she wasn't going either. Uh, fair enough. You're right. That's true. <laughs> uh, now, before she can go, however, Red Tornado suggests they all talk strategy for a bit. Now, didn't we just have nearly an entire issue of them standing around talking? But it wasn't about strategy. That's the key. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't strategy talk. You're right. And now they are interrupted by the arrival of Sargon the Sorcerer. Whoa. Well, I guess he is an honorary member of the League. Uh, the elder Earth Tours recognize him as another Earth 2 native who migrated over to Earth 1. Looks like the Huntress takes great offense to the fact that he left Earth 2 because she lunges right at him. And so he manipulates a drainage pipe to wrap around her and keep her at bay. Holy, the pipe came to life, wrapping me up like an early Christmas present. A most charming one. Let me hasten to assure you if I were but a few decades younger. Ew. Right? Gross. <laughs> right off the bat, first thing he says to her is, oh, Yeah, man, okay. a few decades is like, yes, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa. Uh, now, he then turns his attention toward the Red Tornado and creates a little wind of his own to blow him away. Hey, unfair, that wind. Unfair? Come on, does nobody respect the sanctity of superhero combat anymore? Really? There's got to be rules Come on. here. There's got to be regulations. Uh, Power Girl lunges next, but... With a tap on her cheek, she's rendered frozen. It's funny, Jay and Rex are standing by, and they find this whole thing hilarious. They're just standing there laughing. They're just laughing at everybody. <laughs> it's like, ah, you're almost dead. <laughs> if you've done, if you've done your homework, PG, you'd know Sargon's Ruby of Life gives him power over anything he touches. 
Yeah, you know, Armin goes, I always wondered what happened to you, Sargon. Nobody ever tells me anything. Well, I'm really not sure I would trust someone as addicted to Miraclo as to he is, to be honest. I wouldn't tell him either. And, and you know, maybe they did tell him and he just forgot. It's probably, it's true. be like, all right, yeah, no way. And now that I think about it, that's prob- they're probably heading down to Mexico to get some of the generic work. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's, he, that's why he was so cool going there. Yeah. Now, uh, Sargon reveals that he didn't come alone. <laughs> he brought with him... The Spectre. Oh, come on. <laughs> well, technically, it's a comatose Jim Corrigan, but uh, we both know what that means for us eventually. We sure do. You'd know him as the Spectre, Flash, one who walks the corridors of many a cosmos. Struck down by the Thunderbolt because this particular Jim Corrigan, body at least, is purely of Earth-1. His Spectre persona is trapped within this mortal shell. So Sargon offers to join his old buddies in taking on the Crime Champions. Champions? <laughs> Gee, if, if these guys were like the gold medal winners, I'd hate to see the runners up. I mean, really, now? Like, wow. The... <laughs> Icicle? Oh, boy. Now, Sargon, he agrees to head to Stonehenge with Power Girl, naturally. Uh, back on the Thunderbolt dimension, Johnny Thunder is taunting Black Canary with the sight of herself hmm. and, and her dead husband of course it's me or my double lying still as death and the man next to her it's my husband larry lance but but he's dead johnny's already tired of her voice lady's getting kind of testy t-bolt old pal try some electric manacles okay and t-bolt says as you command master thunder in so doing, somehow T-Bolt reveals a tear in the Thunderbolt dimension over Johnny Thunder's head. And inside it, we can see the real deal Earth-2 Johnny Thunder, bound and gagged by electricity. It's Johnny Thunder, the real one! I resent that, Canary. I'm as real as he is. He's not wrong. He's, I'm telling you, he's not he's wrong. Right. He's uh, right. Johnny, the, uh, the one from Earth-1, swats away some electric globs floating around as though they were pesky insects. And he says that after today, he'll be the only Johnny Thunder left. You know, uh, not counting the rest of those infinite Earths that have infinite Johnny Thunders, but that's for I'm another guessing, day. That's for future I'm, Johnny Thunder. <laughs> I'm guessing he hasn't read the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths Absolute Edition. Probably like not, no. Or listen to our five-part episode. <laughs> <laughs> so Johnny decides to do the Bond villain thing and explain everything to his captives. Uh, well, actually, he lets T-Bolt do it because he can. He commands him to do it even. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, tell him your sad story, Pinky I ain't had a good laugh all day I'm truly ashamed of what he forced me to do to all the superheroes of Earth-1 Starman, Black Canary You probably know that I obey the command of Johnny Thunder When he says the Badhesian magic word Say you, or as Johnny puts it, say you Really must have made that Lionel Richie concert a bit awkward, right? Really must have been. <laughs> <laughs> You're hearing it and disappearing, say you, say you. Say it together. Say uh, it now, together. Uh, <laughs> T-Bolt goes into a deep dive flashback mode, much of which we've already covered, but uh, there is some new information as well, such as Johnny and the Bolt fought crime, and in 1947 they crossed paths with Black Canary. Late that year, however, things started going wrong for yours truly. First, an explosion that KO'd me briefly, and then in my next, very next outing with Johnny and you. 
T-Bolt was grounded by a lightning rod in an adventure that spanned Flash Comics issues 86 through 91, that's August 1947 through January 1948. At the end of the day, T-Bolt was able to save the day, but just barely. From this point on, due to a hex by a Badhesian shaman, Johnny's call of Say You wasn't 100% successful in summoning his electric genie. Johnny, who uh, is kind of a jerk, gets ticked off by this and dismisses Thunderbolt. I mean, imagine dismissing a genie. Right? It's the like you didn't come right when yeah, you didn't come right when I called you. Right. <laughs> Johnny goes, You heard me. Go on, wagon your lightning bolt behind you. Who needs you now that the canary and me are together? Johnny, don't Listen, he'll be nothing but a pile of ashes by the time you hear me say say you again. I'm sorry you feel that way, Johnny. If you change your mind in a few months, I'll just give me a holler, okay? From here, Johnny quits the Justice League, and as we mentioned, Black Canary takes his place at the end of All-Star Comics 41, July 1948 cover date. Around this same time in her civilian flower shop owner life, Dinah Drake meets a man named Larry Lance, and it's a love connection. And so, she drops the hammer on Johnny. Please, Johnny, can't we still be friends? Here comes the pain. You know I've always liked you. Don't do it. But like a brother. Brother. Damn. And that was the last time she'd see Johnny for a while, (laughs) as he wound up being kidnapped by that Badhesian shaman and is actually made king of wherever the hell Badhesians hang out, I guess. (laughs) Bad, bad Hinesia? I don't know. Badnesia, yeah. Uh, eventually, the Justice Society would disband, as shown in Action All-Star Comics number 466. Somewhere along the line, Johnny abdicated his Badnesian crown. I hear that and four bucks will get you a happy meal. I really? Right? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny returns and angrily watches Dinah and Larry wed. I'd brought him back a few months earlier for Dinah and Lance's wedding. They invited Johnny, and he came, of course, but he couldn't bring himself to walk into the church. He's just, like, standing at the door with his fists balled up. He's like, ugh. Yeah, uh, you're yeah, hearing hello play, you know, by you know, Lionel <laughs> Richie, you know, bling. There you go. <laughs> now, Dinah and Larry would go on to have a daughter that they also named Dinah. <laughs> <laughs> very lazy, very lazy. Yes. And one night, they were visited by the villainous wizard. Larry, that light! What? Why, I'm disappointed in you, Dinah Lance, alias Black Canary. Don't you recognize the greatest super criminal in the history of this planet? <laughs> wow, he said it without laughing, too. That's pretty right? good. <laughs> the wizard, but you're in jail. Correction, please. I was in prison. Dinah lunges at the wizard, but winds up going right through him. Before the wiz takes his leave, he places a curse on the child. I'm going now, Black Canary, but I've learned a a bit of true magic since I escaped, and the children must suffer, alas, for the sins of the parents. With that, Dinah, the baby one, begins to cry, and not like a baby cry, more like a canary cry. Mm. To say, uh, having nowhere to turn to, Dinah, this is the mom, the grown-up one, decides to check on her old friend Johnny Thunder, uh, well, she actually wanted to talk to T-Bolt, but they're kind of a package deal, so you got to Unfortunately, do that. yeah. That's how it is. You got to go through channels. Yeah. <laughs> Say you, got to help us, T-Bolt. The wizard's fixed it so any little peep this baby makes is worse than the Frisco Quake. His scheme is a fiendish one, Master John. 
Though the infant herself suffers no pain, the only thing I can do, however, is take her into my own dimension for safekeeping, where I'm sure the wizard spell won't work. But I could never bring her back, or else... Take her, Thunderbolt, please! And in Larry's only line, he goes, You must, for her sake, and maybe the world's. And so he does just that. Well, he does that, and one more thing. But there's one more thing I did there. Something I did without Johnny's prompting, or even knowledge. I caused all three of them to forget what really happened. I believe the baby had died. It seemed easier that way. Wait, so we're doing this whole mind wipe thing, right? So why not make it make them just forget that the baby yeah. ever existed at all? That I mean, the easiest that's way, right? The easiest, least painful kind of way. It's like, it's like not that your baby's alive in another universe. Your baby's dead. Your baby died because of your negligence and inability to parent correctly. <laughs> to parent and uh, naming it the same name. People got, we got confused. Yeah. It's way worse when you have the power. Wipe the mind. Don't just sure. You know, uh, and little Dinah grew to womanhood without ever making another sound or even opening her eyes. Then, that's her over there? A child I never knew I had? Come on, Dinah. Come on. Now, Johnny, the Earth One Johnny, interrupts the retroactive continuity dump and commands T-Bolt to tune in on the rest of the heroes' exploits against the crime champions. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Flash and Our Man arrive in Mexico, only to find uh, of all of the people and animals there stuck in suspended animation. Rex spots the Fiddler and Kronos and punches them real good. Only, it wasn't really them, it was just a hologram, and Rex actually punches a great big rock. Yes. The villains do show up shortly, however, and the Fiddler uses his power to make the heroes dance like idiots. Let's see now. The composition itself comes easily, but it deserves a name. How about Dancing Till You Die? Has sort of a ring, don't you both agree? And so Flash and Our Man begin to boogie. <laughs> and Our Man goes, can't help myself. I can't either. Uh, either. We next shift to Egypt, where Red Tornado and Huntress descend upon the Great Pyramid. Reddy sets Huntress down on the side of the pyramid, which Icicle immediately ices up and sends her sliding all the way down. It's like literally the only thing Icicle could do there also. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, though she does manage to wing him in the dome with a, with a uh, Huntress ring before going down <laughs> downhill. Dr. Alchemy distracts Red Tornado long enough so he doesn't realize that Huntress is about to crash right into him on her way down. Yeah, these scenes are pretty lame. They are pretty much Silver Age style, though. I'll give them that. Mm. Like, this really does harken back <laughs> to the way the early books were. Uh, next, Stonehenge. Uh, the wizard tricks Power Girl and Stargon into fighting one another. Let's get back to the canary stuff now. All right, so back in the Thunderbolt dimension, Earth-1 Johnny tires of this nonsense and orders T-Bolt to kill Dinah and Starman. T-Bolt, kill those two! Master, no! I I've never killed before! Then do it, and then go mark a red letter on your calendar! <laughs> Across the area, the Earth-2 Johnny Thunder tries to wriggle free of his electrical bindings. Luckily for him, those globs of electricity the other Johnny swatted away earlier are hanging around, and they help him get free. 
Wow, how convenient. Hey, you ain't seen nothing get in the convenience <laughs> department. <laughs> you heard me, you pinko excuse for a thunderstorm. I love that. Kill him. <laughs> and when you're done, kill the other Johnny Thunder. Just for good measure. Who needs you? I love it. I love when it becomes this anti-communist thing all of a sudden. And it's like, like there's a basis for it, sort of, but it's so weird. Like, comes out of nowhere. Uh, Thunderbolt has no choice. I, I'm sorry, Black Canary. Star man. I've resisted his commands to kill till now, but I can't hold out any longer. If any Johnny Thunder says kill, I've got to. Fight it, T-Bolt, as long as you can. Looks like the end, Dinah. Not so fast, because Johnny the Earth 2 Johnny goes, No! Say you! Can't kill our buddies, T-Bolt! Uh, T-Bolt is overcome with joy. Master John, thank heavens, since I couldn't remove your gag myself, I was afraid you'd never... Don't pay him any mind, Pinky. You're working for me now. All I gotta do is cancel out his command to say, say you. Uh, and it doesn't work, which is uh, no. pretty convenient to that, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. We're playing like really fast and loose with Badhesian magics, right? We probably got to cover our front doors with chocolate sauce and sleep with an onion under our pillows tonight, I think. Yeah, just to be safe, we probably That's, should. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do do that once a week already, but tonight yeah. especially. Got to do it, got to do it. Yeah. Now, a now-freed Johnny Thunder number 2 socks his Earth-1 counterpart in the mush. Well, uh, that was pretty easy. That so, uh, after a brief reunion, Johnny sends Thunderbolt out into the real world to wake up the Earth-1 Justice Leaguers, and within a handful of pages, they help the JSAers take down the crime champions. And that's all we're going to say about it, because that's really the most uninteresting part of this little It's event. like an afterthought. It's, it really is. It's just it like, is. They might as well, yeah. That, that could have been the text page for, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're treating it as such. Uh, now, after the dust settles, we return to the Thunderbolt dimension. Uh, Earth-1 Johnny is saying, see you, say you, see you, over and over and over again, but cannot reclaim the Thunderbolt for whatever convenient reason. I don't know why. Uh, Dinah then turns to Earth-2 Johnny for some answers. Somebody's got to tell me just what is going on here. That my, is that my daughter over there? A daughter I'd forgotten? Or is the answer even stranger than that? And uh, what's that thing about not asking questions you don't really want the answer to? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry none of us JSAers could ever help you, Dinah. But somehow, we could just never find the words. And then, once you left for Earth-1, we thought it best to leave well enough alone. And just then, Superman... And the Spectre arrive. They do. And the Spectre says, Obviously, we were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, we're on the air. Uh, now, Dinah turns to Superman for answers because she, she, she doesn't even have the patience for the Spectre. Kal-El! You're the one I recall taking me to Earth-1 after Larry Lance died. A false memory, Dinah. I was carrying the Black Canary there, yes, after our battle with Aquarius. But it was your mother, not you. And then in a flashback, we see Superman carrying Black Canary through space. Ah! All of a sudden, terrible pain shooting through me. Great Krypton. I should have realized. My x-ray vision shows you were doused with enough of Aquarius's cosmic energy to kill you. With Larry dead, I don't, I don't care. But just let me see my child's grave one last time. 
before I die. Before we know it, Superman and the Golden Age Dinah are swept into the Thunderbolt dimension. Here she is, and she looks just like you did years ago, Canary. Then she's been alive all these years. If only she could take my place. Wait a minute. Oh. It's crazy, I know. But maybe, just maybe. <laughs> Superman explains the process now in the present. The exchange of minds and memories was accomplished, barely in time, complete with a magically created second canary outfit. Yes, yes, that's the most important part, of course, is the costume. The costume. Say, uh, how come young Dinah thought she was married to her dad in the beginning? Did we know why? Anyone Grief can be a terrible thing, but it was, but it's also, in a strange way, a healing thing. And Thunderbolt also erased all memory of the very existence of a child from your brain, though he thought it wisest not to expunge your mother's remembrance of Larry Lance. Uh, Dinah processes this all pretty quickly, and honestly, she doesn't even even seem that bugged out over it. She's like, no, oh, never. Oh, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I had ultrasonic powers when I reached Earth 2. The mother's side of my enabled me to learn to control them. Yes, the JSAers and I have always known this. Probably not our man, though, because nobody tells old uh, Miraclo taking no. anything, you know? <laughs> but when the Justice Leaguers thought your new powers were caused by Aquarius, I let them go on believing it. So Dinah finally cries, but just for a moment. And the Spectre says, Be not ashamed of tears that flow, unbidden Dinah Drake. Just remember always that your mother was willing to perish, that you might live among your own kind, not simply as her surrogate, but in time as yourself. Yeah, thanks for coming, Spectre. Uh, you, you damned idiot. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> that's really all he says here, and and it's complete it's crap. I know. It it's because the older Dinah didn't like choose to perish or like was okay with it. She was dying. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts. She had no choice in the matter. And and like Superman said it himself, they barely got the job done. Uh, yeah, and, it wasn't a foregone conclusion here. You know, it wasn't like a yeah. destiny or something like this. <laughs> And Kid Dinah was actually her surrogate. The, the, the Dinah Drake Lance even used the phrase, take my place. Hello. <laughs> right? <laughs> you idiot Spectre. Once again, Spectre doesn't understand anything. No, the worst. Uh, so Dinah bids her parents farewell, <laughs> promising to return for visits, uh, which they ain't going to realize since they're in suspended animation, but it's uh, it's a bit more morbid than visiting a grave, ain't it? You know? Don't you? I mean, you're looking right at them. They're, they're technically alive still. It makes it even weirder. Sorta, Can yeah. they see you? That's the question, really. Mm. And then, before we wrap up, she asks Superman for two favors. First, to take her home to Earth-1, and the second... Let me be the one to explain all this to Ollie. Uh -huh. The end. Wham, wham, wham. So that was pretty interesting stuff. You know, Chris, I'm, yeah. thinking, I'm thinking maybe the reason that the Thunderbolt powers started to get weird, it might be a pronunciation thing. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, say you, say you, I've saved the right, say you, you know, and then you're like, say you, no, no. Say you, say you. They might have had to change it after Lionel Richie cut that record. Say you, you know, exactly. Then they, then they <laughs> wanted to make it say, say, say. Then, you know, Paul McCartney and Michael <laughs> J. It was the whole thing. So, um, 
Yeah, that was uh, I had a good time with that. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're gonna take a little break, let our old uh, throats uh, heal up, <clears throat> and when we come back, we're gonna talk a little bit more about the creators and retcons and Black Canary. Okay, so let's see. So, so when I came over to Marvel, uh, it was a very dysfunctional situation. And to illustrate that, I have this one particular anecdote. There was a writer named uh, John Warner. Uh, and this is not meant as a criticism of John's work one way or the other, but he was writing a book called Son of Sin that wasn't doing particularly well. And I didn't want to keep him on the book. Uh, he, was, he, was a, he was working in production, so it wasn't like I was taking his livelihood away from him. Um, and I just felt that he wasn't showing much promise. It was, I wanted to bring Tony Isabella in as a, uh, giving him more work, uh, and I felt this would be a good opportunity for him. So I, I made an executive decision that I was going to take John off the book. Well, I tell John, and uh, a day or so later, one of the uh, people at, uh, in production uh, comes in and says, well, you can't take John off that book. You can't take him off that writing assignment. And we're Saying, so, what do you mean I can't? I just, I'm the editor and I can do whatever I want. I'm the editor. And uh, they said, no, no, you can't do it. And, uh, because if you do it, you know, we're, we're, it's going to cause a lot of problems here. Uh, you know, and we're going to have, it's going to be a real problem for the production department. Uh, and, uh, you know, we may all end up leaving. Uh, and I'm saying, well, why would you do that? And he says, well, because he's a member of our coven. <laughs> a member of your Coven. <laughs> there was a coven of witches in the production department at Marvel. That was the situation. Uh, I couldn't fire my secretary because I mean, the, the secretary that I had inherited wasn't doing any work. Uh, she was spending pretty much eight hours a day corresponding with fans. And I would ask her to put, get out a letter or something, and she would say, no, I can't do that because I'm, I'm keeping up with the correspondence. I said, what correspondence? She says, well, fans write in, and I, I write back. I'm like, <laughs> you don't have to do that. I mean, we don't have to write back. We have a letters column. You know, it's, it's nice to write back, but that's not your job. Your job is as my secretary, and I want you to do X, Y, Z. I can't do that. Well, I, could, I, I thought, well, I'm going to have to let her go. And somebody said, you can't let her go. I said, why can't I let her go? She, she, she's dating Chris Claremont. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> am I the editor or am I not the editor? What's going on here? Uh, and then the, 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 the thing that finally, I, and I was having a lot of conflict with a lot of people o over this. And, as, and, and part of that is because this was, as I say, a very dysfunctional situation in which there were a lot of empowered people who didn't have responsibility to go with their empowerment. You know, I had the responsibility. I was the one who was responsible for making sure that our books got out on time and that they were well done and, you know, uh, all of that. But these were people who were empowered to make their own decisions but didn't have the responsibility of making sure that things got done. Um, and, the, 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 and I was getting really miserable. I mean, I was feeling really miserable very quickly. Uh, lots of fights, lots of arguments, and the final straw came when uh, Steve Englehart and I had been roommates uh, when I f when he first uh, uh, came to New York. Uh, he ended up living in an apartment in uh, Connecticut, and I ended up when I f 
uh, first moved out on my own as a, uh, at 18, I ended up living with Steve. So we were friends and we had always been kind of friendly competitors, you know, because we were both writers and feeling our oats. Uh, and he was a bit older than I was, so, you know, he felt, I think, that, that he had more uh, legitimacy, you know, and he was kind of resentful of the fact that I was this young snot getting all this attention. Um, so Steve had been working with George Perez on Avengers, and he'd been working on a number of titles, and he was kind of, I won't say, I mean, I can't say that he was, he was, um, uh, horrendously late on a regular basis, but he was just late enough that it was causing George problems. George is not a fast artist, and he, it, part of the deal that you make when you're a writer working uh, with uh, artists back then was that you were, your job as a writer, in part, is to help keep that, that artist employed. So if you don't get your plot or your script in, that artist loses a day's work. That's a substantial amount of money. And in George's case, because he was slow, it also has repercussions in the production end of things. So I was getting told by uh, our head of production that uh, Steve was causing these problems with George, and George was too nice a guy to you know make a big fuss about it. Uh, and I felt, well, you know, I know Steve. You know, I'll just call him up and tell him you know what's going on. And so I, I called Steve and I said, look, you know, we have a real problem with this. You know, you need to have the story in by Friday uh, or, you know, I'll have to plot something over the weekend so, that's, so that uh, George will have something to draw on Monday. And Steve says, well, I can get it in by Friday. It's not a problem. And, you know, he was a little testy about it because, you know, I was calling him on, on this. Uh, and then Friday comes around and there's no plot. And I I call Steve and says, where's the plot? You know, George is going to need it Monday. And he's like, no, I, 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 I never said I'd have it on Friday. I said I'd have it on Monday. I said, no, you said you'd have it in on Friday. And I had, you know, I had my production guy in here. We need to have it because if I don't have, if, if I trust you to have it in on Monday and you don't, then George is not going to have any work. So that's why I needed you to have it in today. Uh, and he was like, well, I never said I'd have it. Uh, uh, it doesn't matter. I'll plot it, you know. Just tell me what you want to have done in that story, and I'll, I'll get it done. I can't do that, you know, and he hung up on me. So I plotted the story, and fully intending that, you know, George would take it and draw it, and then Steve would write it and, you know, make it great, and it would be great. Uh, but Steve and Jim Starling then called Stan and said, you know, Jerry is out of control. He's berserk. You know, he's lying to people. He's telling us, you know, he's, he's stabbing us in the back. Uh, if you don't fire him, we're going to quit. Stan says, I can't fire him. He's my editor. You know, it's like, I can't do that. You know, why would I do that? First of all, you know, we know Stan's attitude about, you know, who's, in, who's, who's closest to me right now. <laughs> That's like the guy I'm going to. Right. So it's like, besides which, who are you? <laughs> he didn't know who these people were. So uh, Stan backed me up and Steve and Jim both quit and went to D.C. And I was like, Fuck. Why am I doing this? You know, what, 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 am I, what joy am I getting out of, out of this experience here? And about a week later, I, I called Stan and I said, you know, I, I, I hate to put you in this situation, you know, especially, you know, since you backed me up, but, you know, I can't do this. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm losing sleep, you know, I mean, I've, it's been six weeks of just sheer 
nightmare. Uh, I need to, I'm going to go back to D.C. I'm just going to leave, you know, and put you back in the same position. I'm sorry. And he, he made me a deal. Oh, no, stay, you know, we'll make you a writer-editor, thereby compounding the problem for whoever came oh, in, sure. <laughs> you, know, you know, beyond me. Because now suddenly, you know, there'd be another writer-editor for somebody to deal with. Uh, and I, st I stuck around for another six months or so uh, to do that, uh, but never really felt like you know I was going to be able to make that work, uh, and left eventually go back to D.C. where I stayed you know fairly happy for the next ten years. All right, we are back and uh, we're done mucking around with uh, Dinah Lance's uh, pre-crisis continuity, uh, a little something that uh, they call a retcon. Um, now, uh, what is a retcon anyway? Well, retcon, short for retroactive continuity, is, to use the quick and dirty Wikipedia definition, a literary device in which established facts in a fictional work are adjusted, ignored, or contradicted by a subsequently published work which breaks continuity with the former. Now, this is a term first used in E. Frank Tupper's The Theology of Wolfhart Pannenberg, a quote from The Theology of Wolf Gang Wolf Hart Pannenberg <laughs> says, uh, Pannenberg's conception of retroactive continuity ultimately means that history flows fundamentally from the future to the past, that the future is not basically a product of the past. Hmm. The first ever printed use of this device is actually from our man Roy Thomas. In the letters column for All-Star Squadron number 18, February 1983, Roy answered a letter from a fan who was delighted and impressed with Roy's ability to reconcile Golden Age plot lines with their contemporary stories. Roy responded with, We like to think that an enthusiastic all-star booster at one of Adam Malin's creation conventions in San Diego came up with the best name for it a few months back. Retroactive continuity. Has a kind of ring to it, don't you think? Yeah, we fast forward a handful of years, and retroactive continuity was shortened to retcon over at my old stomping grounds, Usenet. Oh, boy, uh, with newspeak new is all the rage. <laughs> now, a fan named Damien Cugley, or Coogley, is usually credited with coining this term in 1988, though that credit might actually come from Coogley himself. <laughs> uh, he might be a meta-retcon. No. Uh, now, he claimed to be the originator of that term in a Usenet post dated August 18th, 1990, when discussing some retroactive continuity taking place during Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Uh, we were originally planning on discussing retcons at length here today, but that subject kind of bloomed into an unwieldy mess that might make for a better Weird Comics history episode somewhere down the line, I think, you know. Uh, yeah. But looking at this black canary Michigas, what we're about to discuss uh, didn't last terribly long. Uh, would we call this a retcon done right? What do you I, think? You know, I, I love how it was uh, how everything fit in there. Um, I, I had reviewed this one at the site not too long ago, and uh, someone <laughs> I had people saying it was great, and I had one guy say it was continuity porn. Right. Which uh, I, I mean, I, you could see it both ways. This is this is a really interesting one because this is totally a fan service. This this is for a comic fan. You know, this this is yeah. not this is a comic that you could read to pick it up off the shelves. Although, it's, frankly, you. Be a little very confused, but you could probably yeah. get through the story. But this is definitely for the fans. This is definitely a product of the direct market. All these other mm -hmm. thoughts swimming in my head. Uh, as a fan, I appreciate that you know everything is included. Yeah. But yeah. As, as a story, it's a little goofy, Chris. Let's face it; it's a little goofy. 
<laughs> you know what I, I mean? I, it's like I pass the old mom pass the torch thing at the, at the last minute. It's like, oh well, all right. <laughs> it's very true. I, I would just uh I've said it before, I'd love to see uh, Roy Thomas do his research. I think that's yeah. probably, like, because uh, when you do, like, his All-Star Squadron, there's so much real-world stuff in there uh, intersecting with comics, history, and lore. And Absolutely, yeah. It's just, I, I couldn't imagine the amount of texts and tomes he's going through and atlases to make sure that I maps mean, are correct. You know, including Johnny Thunder is a central part of his story with, with Black Canary that was, you mm-hmm. know, taken right out of the Golden Age and stuff. And people yeah, often, the patriotic crimes, all that stuff. People, they often talk about the uh, wave of British writers, you know, Alan Moore and uh, Grant Morrison and those guys mm-hmm. as being the retcon kings or the research kings or whatever. Uh, but here's Roy doing it long, long before they ever touched him. He was already in the in the For old sure. back issues, uh, making sure everything was uh, important. You know, so that's cool. I'd love to see him just get a uh, get a chance to do this at either Marvel or DC today. Just just one issue. Yeah. <laughs> just to see his head explode. Just a real deep dive. Be like, <laughs> like, well, you know, the, he'd have like a certain amount of history, an easy timeline until about 1999, and then it would be like everything <laughs> is just starts getting compressed and jammed into everything. And, and uh, we're gonna go through Black Canary's uh, biography, so you're gonna see what happens over oh, yeah. the turn of the century. It gets uh, they come fast and furious. The uh, the changes they do, uh, but before we get to that, let's finish up Mr. Roy Thomas. Go to 1984, where Roy wrote Jim Shooter a letter which reads in part to let bygones be bygones and, if possible, to avoid adverse comment on Marvel and its policies. I've even long regretted the fact that your elevation to the position of editor in chief, in which you've obviously done a fine job, came at a time after I'd moved to the West Coast. Perhaps if we'd more personal communication from 1977 to 1980, we could have come to some sort of agreement at that time, or at least parted under more amicable circumstances. I leave it to you to decide if we should ever make any attempt to rectify that situation. Certainly, I've never been a grudge carrier in other cases. Back to his work at DC, Roy and Scott Shaw created Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew. They debuted as a bonus book insert in New Teen Titans number 16. That's February 1982, Gov. 8. And that series ran for 20 issues from 1982 to 83. Roy wrote issues 288 through 300 of Wonder Woman, February 1982 through February 1983. Issue 300 was co-written by his wife, Dan Thomas, who, as Roy pointed out to Alter Ego in 1999, she became the first woman ever to receive scripting credit on the world's foremost superheroine. Wow. Uh, In 1983, again, Thomas and artist Jerry Ordway created Infinity, Inc., a group composed of JSA's children, the characters debuting in All-Star Squadron No. 25, September 1983 cover. Infinity, Inc. ran for 53 issues, cover dated March 1984 to June 1988, and Thomas also wrote several limited series for DC, including America vs. the Justice Society, four issues January through April 1985, cover dates, Johnny Thunder, a.k.a. Thunderbolt, four issues February through August 1985, cover dates. No, that's, a, that's a different Johnny, that's the female Johnny that's Thunder. That's the girl, that's right, J-O-N-N-I, not, that's, yeah. that, should, I, that should be, it's the same thing we were saying before, we were talking about, see you, say you, say you. Say you. <laughs> it reads differently than you say it. 
Uh, he wrote Shazam, The New Beginning, four issues, April through July, 1987, cover dates. Crimson Adventure, four, Avenger, four issues, June through September, 1988, cover dates. And two issues, The DC Challenge, that was number nine, July 1986. And Phase 12.3, October 1986, cover dates, because they couldn't just end it on 12, they had to spin it out. Uh, yeah, they... Yeah. Several chapters. Everybody got a, got a chapter stuff. at yeah. the end. Uh, Roy also contributed to this series Secret Origins when Golden Age characters were being profiled, including Superman and Batman. Now, Roy's letter to Jim Shooter must have assuaged any hard feelings because in, by 1986, Thomas had begun writing for Marvel's New Universe titles, beginning with Spitfire and the Troubleshooters number 5, February 1987 cover date. He then embarked on a multi-issue run of Night Mask, another New Universe title co-scripted by his wife, Dan Thomas, and that began with issue number 6, April 1987 cover date. He'd go on to script titles starring Doctor Strange, Thor, The Avengers West Coast, and Conan. In 1986, Roy wrote a one-shot issue titled The Last Days of the Justice Society, it's in 1986, of course, penciled by David Ross. And this wiped up the, wiped out the Justice Society just in time for Crisis on Infinite Earths, and uh, it's a very, very, very dense and uh, intimidating read. Uh, <laughs> and everyone dies in the end, so we, you know how it ends already. <laughs> now, Young All-Stars would replace All-Star Squadron following the crisis, debuting with their first issue in June 1987, and that ran for 31 issues plus an annual. That took, you know, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman out of the Golden Age and gave them replacements in, you know, Iron Monroe, Iron Monroe uh, and that Fox guy and right. <laughs> all sorts of stuff. Uh, now, uh, yeah, what's it? Uh, Thomas's last major writing project for uh, DC was an adaptation of Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle, which was drawn by Gil Kane and published in 1989 through 1990. During the 90s, Roy wrote issues of the TV series tie-in Xena Warrior Princess and Hercules the Legendary Journeys. Those were for Topps Comics. Additionally, he began writing more for other media, which includes television. Roy relaunched Alter Ego as a magazine published by Two Moros, T-W-O Moros, publishing in 1999. In 2005, he earned a master's degree in humanities from California State University. Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano completed the four-issue miniseries Stoker's Dracula, October 2004 to May 2005, cover dates for Marvel Comics. That was an adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. Uh, they had begun it 30 years earlier in 10- to 12-page installments, beginning with Marvel's black-and-white magazine Dracula Lives, number 5, March 1974, cover date. Then through issues 6 through 8 and then 10 through 11, of Marvel Preview number 8, and then finally finishing it in 2004, or 5, I guess. In 2006 to 2007, Thomas wrote five issues of Anthem, a comic about World War II superheroes in an alternate reality for Heroic Publishing. He returned to Red Sonja in 2006, writing the one-shot Red Sonja Monster Isle for Dynamite Entertainment, and then from 2007 to 2010, Thomas returned to Marvel to write a number of adaptations of cl classic literature for the imprint Marvel Illustrated, including The Last of the Mohicans, The Man in the Iron Mask, Treasure Island, The Iliad, Moby Dick, The Picture of Dorian Gray, The Three Musketeers, and Kidnapped. Through this imprint, he also released that collected Stoker's Dracula, uh, including all that stuff that was originally printed in the uh, 1970s in 2010. So you can see the whole thing 
without having to dig through the bins, if you like. Mm -hmm. In 2012, he teamed up with artists Mike Hawthorne and Dan Penosian on Dark Horse's Conan, The Road of Kings, which lasted 12 issues. And then in 2014, he wrote 75 Years of Marvel, from the Golden Age to the Silver Age, to the Silver Screen, for Tashin. Uh, This is an 11 by 11.4 by 15.6 inch 712 page history of Marvel Comics that comes complete with a cardboard box that has a handle because it's massive, folks. Yes, don't use the handle though, you don't want to break it. You will break it. Uh, In uh, 2018, Thomas reunited with Stan Lee at his house in Beverly Hills for the first time in more than 30 years in order to discuss Thomas's book, The Stan Lee Story. During the gathering, Lee told his manager, Simino, to take care of my boy Roy before snapping a few pictures together, and these pictures wound up being the last photos of Stan Lee ever taken. Roy was inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2011, and he serves on the Hero Initiative Disbursement Committee. Let's shift to the side here and wrap up Jerry Conway. Now, his time at Marvel would conclude in 1989 when he became the story editor for the CBS television crime drama Father Dowling Mysteries. This led to a long career writing, then producing for television, including such shows as Diagnosis Murder, Matlock, Jake and the Fat Man, Hercules' The Legendary Journeys, Baywatch Nights, Pacific Blue, Silk Stalkings, The Perry Mason Telefilms, Law and Order, The Huntress, Law and Order Criminal Intent, and an episode of Batman the Animated Series that was uh, Appointments in Crime Alley. Conway's last recorded comics credit for many years was Top Comics' Kirbyverse one-shot, Night Glider No. 1, that had an April 1993 cover date and was scripted from a Roy Thomas plot. And then Conway returned to comics in 2009 and wrote DC's Last Days of Animal Man with artist Chris Batista, published with a May cover date. In 2011, he wrote the DC retroactive Justice League, the 80s, one-shot with an October cover date. That was just before the new 52. In 2015, he returned to Spider-Man at Marvel by writing a story in Spider-Verse Team-Up number 2 and the Spiral storyline in The Amazing Spider-Man 16.1 through 20.1. Yep. He returned to work as a series regular writer that same year with Carnage, and that ran for 16 issues until 2017. In 2016, though, he wrote The Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows 1 through 9, which I think brought uh, Parker and Mary Jane back together. And they had a kid. Yeah, it was a different universe. It was, it was, a, it I was think it spun thing. out of Secret Wars. Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah see, I, I need to read these things before <laughs> I talk about them. Uh, you Jer- might not need to. <laughs> no, no, I'm not guaranteeing it, but anyway. <laughs> Jerry married his second wife, Karen, in 1982, and he has a daughter from his first marriage and a daughter with his current wife, and they currently live in California. And now to wrap up, uh, wrap up on Chuck, uh, along with the aforementioned Vibe and Gypsy, Chuck Patton also created the Cadre, the Overmaster, and Paragon with Jerry Conway in the pages of Justice League of America. Many fans didn't appreciate the changes happening in this title at the time. Uh, Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman left the J- JLA, for instance. And uh, this left kind of a stain on Patton's time on the title in many memories, which I think is kind of unfair, Chris, because is, yeah. he was just drawing the, the dang thing here. But, <laughs> it's you know. True. It's true. <laughs> uh, after leaving Justice League and maybe due in part to fan backlash, Patton was unsuccessful gaining another regular pen- penciling assignment. Instead, he worked on single issues or short runs of such DC titles as Action Comics Weekly, Blue Beetle, Legion of Superheroes, The New Teen Titans, Omega Men, The Outsiders, Secret Origins, and Vigilante. He was also a contributor to 1985's limited series DC Challenge. 
Also during this period, Patton did sporadic work for Eclipse Comics and Marvel Comics on such titles as The New DNA Agents, Daredevil, and Classic X-Men. Patton was considered to replace Todd McFarlane on The Incredible Hulk, but he turned the offer down when he was asked to emulate McFarlane's art style, which uh, if you've seen this issue and seen Todd's, uh, they are quite different. That would be a weird, that would be a, a stretch to do, yeah. A little, a little difficult, yeah. Uh, in 1988, after half a decade in the comics industry and having moved to Los Angeles, Patton became disillusioned with comics and moved into children's television animation. His credits there include Dino Sources, G.I. Joe, Captain and the Game Master, The Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3, Inspect the Gadget Saves Christmas, and Teen Titans. Patton has become a successful animation director, helming such projects as Dead Space Downfall, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Todd McFarlane's Spawn, oddly enough, uh, for which uh, Patton garnered an Emmy Award for Outstanding Animated Program in 1999. He was also nominated in the same category in 1993 for that Inspector Gadget Saves Christmas. So there you go. it's quality all around, and uh, mm -hmm. I believe someone asked Chuck Patton if he has still has any bears any grudges against comics, and from atop a golden throne aligned with money, he just laughed and <laughs> said, no, no, it's, it's fine. I still make those things. Good, good, goodness, goodness me. Uh, anyway, so now a little more uh, canary. Uh, the black one, in fact, although she's not actually black. Uh, immediately in the wake of the events of Crisis on Infinite Earths, Dinah had a lot more changes to her history occur. First, she was named a founding member of the Justice League of America. She replaced Wonder Woman, whose own story was altered pretty radically. This is when she went into that heavy Greek era, right? The George Perez stuff? Yeah, uh, she was uh, the, the glob of clay, like while the heroes were already out there. Right, it's, it's, yeah, they, yeah. They, they really changed her story drastically. Uh, and yeah, she didn't arrive in the man's world until the league was already active, so it wasn't. It was uh, happened much later for her. Second change was that that whole doppelganger gambit was rendered moot because the infinite Earths were all wiped out, so there never was a mother on Earth two. Uh, meaning Dinah Drake, yeah, the original Black Canary, served with the Justice Society back in the long ago on this Earth, and Dinah Lance, the current Black Canary, served as a member of the Justice League in more recent years. No need to merge them or to get rid of one to have the other. They just are two different people at two different times. Yes. Now, Dinah Drake, the first, was revealed to have been trained by her father, a GCPD detective, Richard Drake. His first appearance, DC Special Series number 10, January 1978, cover date, created by Jerry Conway and Mike Vosberg. As far as we know, there's uh, no relation or connection to Tim Drake, but, uh, I mean, that, I guess that could change. That could happen. Uh, yeah, we don't know. <laughs> now, she attempted to join the Gotham City Police Department, but was refused. And so she decided to become a vigilante instead, you know, oh, just like you do. Sure, that's what I was thinking you do. <laughs> now, Dinah Drake was still an owner of a flower shop like the original uh, and also a member of the Justice Society, and she also still married a man named Larry Lance. They'd still have a child, naturally, who was quite precocious sort. Uh, she even discovered her mother's heroic secret. Dinah Drake's final outing a as a hero was during a Justice League of America battle against Aquarius. Hey! During which Larry still dies in the fracas, and uh, Dinah the first winds up infected with cancer, which ultimately takes her life, but not before a deathbed reunion with her daughter. Which is so there's elements 
are maintained, yeah. but it, it's a little, it's how they slide it around. Uh, now on to Dinah Lance, Dinah Laurel Lance. Her first appearance technically is Justice League of America number 75, November, November 1969, cover date by Denny O'Neill and Dick Dillon. After discovering her mother's past as a costume vigilante, she became a crime fighter herself. She was trained by Wildcat Ted Grant, that was a JSA associate of her mother's. Rather than have her canary cry powers be a result of the wizard's curse, the post-crisis, post-invasion landscape would have us blame it on that pesky metagene that the gene bomb brought out of everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, Dinah would be a founding member of the Justice League of America alongside Hal Jordan, Barry Allen, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter. Dinah would come up with the team's name as a way to both honor and differentiate from the Justice Society, which came long before. And she also met and hit it off with Oliver Queen, even going a hard traveling road trip with he and his pal Hal. When it was revealed that Ollie's ward Roy Harper was a heroin junkie, Dinah and Hal kept him, uh, helped him through his withdrawals. Especially Dinah, it was like she became a yeah. mother figure to him, like in that one issue, right? Yeah. You know, it had not been established, <laughs> but suddenly she was like his surrogate mother. Uh, Ollie was more keen on just kicking the kid out of the house, really. Yeah, <laughs> get out. Yeah. Uh, now, Ollie would briefly dis disappear after accidentally killing a man, which led to Dinah and Hal teaming up again in order to track him down. You know, I'm thinking, with how many ga gals of pals Hal tried dating, it's a wonder that he and Dinah didn't become it's an true. item. It's right? true. Never. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, not even yeah. will they, won't they. It's something that's fucking... Yeah. <laughs> the line was drawn with the two of them. <laughs> uh, now, Dinah would be injured when an impaired driver crashed through a phone booth where she was making a phone call. And this led to her being reunited with Ollie, as he had the rare blood type which she needed in order to get a transfusion and save her life. Uh, this was during a time where the Green Lantern title was canceled and Hal and Pals were relegated to backups in The Flash. Mm -hmm. uh, moving into post-crisis proper, uh, Dinah would be a founding member of yet another version of the League, this being Maxwell Lord's Justice League International. Though, she wouldn't remain there long. And thankfully, her gaudy JLI-era costume didn't remain long either with the uh, headband <laughs> and weird ninja-esque yeah. whatever the heck it was. Uh, she's actually depicted as burning the ugly thing on the cover of Action Comics Weekly number 609. Uh, speaking of which, she would have two extended features during the weekly anthology series. That was Action Comics Weekly 609 to 616 and Action Comics Weekly 624 to 634. And we will get to them one of these days, Chris, I'm yeah. telling you now. Yeah. Uh, she and Ollie would move to Seattle and she'd open up the flower shop Sherwood Florist, which is pretty clever. Uh, Ollie, going through a midlife crisis, suddenly became keen on making an honest woman out of Dinah, but she turned him down. She got kidnapped, during which she would also be viciously tortured and lose her canary cry ability, and also the ability to have children. Uh, we discussed that long form in Cosmic Treadmill episode 34, The Longbow Hunters, which is back in the archives. During this run, Dinah didn't do much crime fighting, though she did break out the canary duds every now and again, uh, but she was more of a supporting character for Ollie. Until she dumped his ass for catching him making out with their assistant. Oh, well, that'll happen. O Ollie's got a Ollie. Um, <laughs> now, Dinah would have a 12-issue, uh, a like a street-level series that ran through uh, 1993 cover dates, January through December, uh, which she ditches her blonde wig halfway through and ended with the destruction of Sherwood Flora. I, I can't believe we made it all this way without mentioning the wig at all. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, Dinah actually has short, dark hair, but wears a long blonde wig when fighting crime. I mean, that's basically so, her uh, costume. You know, the, 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 <laughs> there, there is like a fishnet getup too, but 
The wig is it. That's all she said. That's the wig her, is that's it. her Clark Kent glasses. <laughs> now, Dinah's next run-in with a Green Arrow would be Connor Hawk, Ollie's son. He delivers her the news that Ollie died dealing with eco-terrorists, and this happened in Green Arrow, Volume 2, Number 101, October 1995, cover date. Dinah would be contacted by Barbara Gordon, who was the former Batgirl, current Oracle at the time, about working with or for her in Gotham City. Their partnership would become the Birds of Prey. During this time, rather than continue wearing the wig, Dinah just decided to grow her hair out and bleach it. Uh, she was equipped with an electronic device that allowed her to perform her canary cry. So she didn't have her powers, but she was able to still do the cry. Fake up and do it, yeah, that's yes. fine. And this was until she had a run-in with Ra's al Ghul, after which Dinah took a dip in the Lazarus Pit, and that gave her her powers back, and also made her able to have kids if she wanted to. It's a hell of a spa, that Lazarus Pit, I'll tell you what. It's, yeah, if, if, you can, if you can get to one, I suggest it. I recommend <laughs> it. Uh, now, the Birds of Prey would grow over the years and incarnations to include characters like the Huntress, Gypsy, Lady Blackhawk, Hawk and Dove, and they'd even associate with a rather portly uh, Ted Cord for yeah, a little he while. He was kind of chunky in that one. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not the only team Dinah would be a part of. No, the uh, JSA would reform around the turn of the century following the mysterious death of the Golden Age Sandman. Dinah, she'd be a founding member of that incarnation, though she quits when she learns of Oliver Queen's apparent resurrection. Their reunion is short-lived because, you know, Ollie's gotta be Ollie. He's got <laughs> chicks to see. Uh, following Infinite Crisis and the one-year jump, Dinah attempts to break Lady Shiva. Shiva, now referred to as Jade Canary, takes Dinah's spot in Birds of Prey for a time. During this time, the bad guys begin grooming a young girl to take over the role of Lady Shiva. Dinah rescues a child who's a girl named Sin and raises her stateside. In order to do so, Dinah has to quit the Birds of Prey. Uh, remember that thing about Dinah being a team founder? Well, she does it again with the post-Infinite Crisis incarnation of the Justice League. Following the Lightning Saga, this is a JLA-JSA team-up which featured the Legion of Superheroes, Ollie once again proposed to Dinah, this time after Ollie proves how much she means to him by faking Sin's death. It's a long story. Uh, she accepts. Yes. Now, the wedding is held in Green Arrow slash Black Canary Wedding Special number 1, cover dated November 2007. Only, it turns out, Dinah doesn't really marry Oliver Queen. What? Instead, instead, she marries the shapeshifter Everyman. And uh, she is attacked prior to uh, consummating the marriage and uh, is forced to kill him. Uh, the next issue, Batman and uh, Dr. Midnight perform an autopsy on Oliver Queen, which involves a chainsaw, and it reveals that uh, he's really every man. Yeah. Uh, Black Canary and Ollie would eventually get married for reals. Uh, during another shuffling of the Justice League of America, Black Canary was made chairwoman or chairperson, which leads to that whole uh, cry for justice debacle, which uh, we sure can't wait to cover here on the show. <clears throat> yeah. uh, now, uh, that, that's, that's, of course, the story where Leanne or Lianne Harper, uh, Roy's daughter, is killed by Prometheus, and then Ollie secretly kills Prometheus. So, you know, an eye for an eye. Why not? <laughs> Now, Ollie winds up going on the run again and has to once again be tracked down by Hal and Dinah, also a newly returned Barry Allen. Once they find him, Dinah decides to dissolve their marriage. Uh, following Black as Night, Dinah and Oracle get the band back together and reform Birds of Prey, but this is short-lived because 
Just a scant few months later, a cosmic toilet gets flushed. I wish I had the sound effect right there. (laughs) So it's funny that Dinah could annul their marriage, so she had to go to hell to have that done, right, and make a deal with uh, with Blaze? I is think that, so. Is that how it works? Or Satanus. Yeah, Satanus. Satanus. Whoever's whoever's on duty. That's yeah. the that's the uh, comic book divorce method. That's the only way to do it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, then we after the uh, that that summer of 2011, we go into the new 52. Do mm. we really got her? Yes, we yeah. really got her. Uh, this version of Dinah. This is Dinah Drake. First appearance was Birds of Prey, Volume Three, Number One, November t- 2011. Cover date. Yeah, right. Uh, started working for John Lynch. That's the Wildstorm guy. She eventually teams up with Team Seven. That's the Wildstorm team. Uh, during which she meets her future husband, Kurt Lance. Uh, really? Why? Why Kurt? Couldn't it be Larry? Like, just make it Larry. Why? What's the Is there difference? a single reason why it could be Larry? You know, but it doesn't. Really, I mean, at least to connect ah. some connectivity to another married uh, thing. But it doesn't matter. He isn't around very long. Uh, Dinah's actually convinced that she killed him. But of course she didn't, and of course he's not really dead. Who even cares? Not me. I really don't. <laughs> DC doesn't care either. Nope. Uh, now it's revealed that Lynch's plan was to push his operatives to the point where they would manifest powers, and uh, believe it or not, Dinah's was a canary cry. How about that? <laughs> uh, she would move to Gotham City and become a bouncer for the Penguin's Iceberg Lounge. And after meeting Batgirl, this is Barbara Gordon after she was fixed, uh, she felt the itch to be part of a team again, and so birds of prey there it is she'd later yeah she'd later start a band and even uh, have a short-lived dcu era series that's a uh, black canary volume 4 issues 1 through 12 august 2015 through august 2016 uh following dc universe rebirth dinah and ollie rekindle something of a relationship mm-hmm. uh dinah joins batman's justice league of america as well as reassembling the birds of prey yet again yeah i believe the former team is disbanded the latter may still be around as of this recording Maybe. i don't know but uh, obviously <laughs> they uh, don't have very formed plans so expect to see Gr- Gr- black canary pop up who knows where, folks? Anywhere. Just keep your eyes. She, she can show up anywhere in this uh, DC <laughs> universe. But, yeah, that wraps up our look at, you know, that's just one character, but you could do this with so many characters, and it would actually oh, sure. get way more complicated. This reminds me a little bit of what we did for the uh, the Who is Donna Troy, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. you can kind of explain that to a point, but it actually gets way more complicated after that story. <laughs> like, it gets, for sure. It gets so out of control. Uh, mm-hmm. It's almost like they, it's almost like you let the cat out of the bag by defining it, and then then you people, break the seal. Yeah, you, exactly. Yeah, people are like, oh well, now we can you know put crazy armor on her. And uh, anyway, <laughs> well, we, I'm sure we will do this kind of dive on other characters in the future. For sure. Guys, but this was a good time. Uh, if you are, are a big Black Canary fan, you want to tell us what you think of this retcon, whether it was a retcon done right. If you like these issues, if you're a big fan of Johnny Thunderbolt like we are, then you can just <laughs> write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We do have a Patreon if you like what we do and you want some exclusive content, three shows per month. Uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash Chris and Reggie and chip in if you're so inclined. Absolutely. You can follow us on Facebook over at facebook.com slash cosmic email history, a page I don't think I've ever visited. But, uh... <laughs> I was there today. It's fine. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it hasn't burned down. It's all no. good. Uh, you can also check us out on Instagram at cosmic T-mail. Yep. Same thing at Twitter. It's at cosmic T-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. 
I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out our weekly writings and recordings on new DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. Uh, you're also doing your bi-weekly dives on uh, Lois Lane. Lois Lane and uh, maybe other things if I can ever find the time. That's uh, the problem. Of course, you can find your Chris's uh, daily writings on DC Comics of the uh, sometimes recent or distant past on chrisoninfiniteearth.com a new review every single day you got the uh, synopsis you got panels from the comic you got the ads you got a, that's a great breakdown next best thing to do, reading the comic and lately you've really uh You've just been bouncing around. It's been Superman this week, hasn't it? Wasn't that, that the thing? Yeah, I did the uh, the burn relaunch and the Marv Wolfman uh, post crisis one too. Yeah. Just to uh, yeah, it's it's um, they're ones that I've wanted to discuss for a while and just never got around to it. So I'm figure it's, it's why a, not? It's a master class in DC Comics. <laughs> Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, so check it out. You. Uh, you can also check out the show site WeirdComicsHistory.blogspot.com, and there you'll be able to find all of our show notes, uh, links to all of the episodes, uh, even embedded episodes. There, so you don't have to leave the site. Uh, you can find our chronological listing of all of our programming here at the uh, Chris and Reggie channel or Cosmic channel, whatever we're calling it. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know. But uh, you'll be able to find everything in the order it's meant to be listened to. So if you are inclined to read things or listen to things in a row, you could do it there. Yeah, that's, that's sometimes that helps, especially on some of our uh, expanded Weird Comics History series. And while you're over there, if your uh, torso is feeling chilly, maybe you feel like you might, might have to put something fashionable on, click the banner for 80stees.com. We're affiliated with them, and uh, anything you want to get over there will help us out, and hopefully it'll help you out, too, to stay warm and looking good in the uh, as the spring comes along and T-shirt season is going to be upon us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? I think they'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill. Eee! Say you. What's the point?